You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com dot com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection download and start listening on your phone computer or tablet that's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk monster talk is an independent podcast production of monster house llc you can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk we want to grow our monster talk audience and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. We never created a mission statement for Monster Talk, but if there was one, it would have to do with talking about weird stuff and how it intersects with science and critical thinking. Using critical thinking as a skill and one that has to be learned and honed. A case could be made that the very best time to teach critical thinking to people is when they are young so that they're better prepared to defend their minds against the bad habit of building strong defenses around beliefs that don't stand up to such scrutiny. Better to topple such misconceptions while they are sandcastles and before they're fortified. To that end, we've frequently brought on guests that we think would appeal to younger audiences, and this week we're happy to welcome Catherine Hulick, who's written a wonderful book that covers many popular mysteries but brings critical thinking and skepticism to bear on the narratives. If you have a teenager in your life that loves reading and loves weird mysteries, Strange But True needs to be on your shopping list. It covers 10 creepy mysteries ranging from Atlantis to zombies. Karen and I sat down to talk with Catherine about her book, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Monster Talk. Sometimes we do research and write a little bio, and yeah. then sometimes we say, hey, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Guess which one you're in tonight. <laughs> 
Do I get to describe myself? Yes. Would you, how, using yes, only please. words, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm a, um, I'm a children's writer and I'm a science writer. So I've been writing for kids about science for over 10 years now. And um, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. This, if you had asked me when I was eight years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said an author. So I, I did follow along that path pretty closely, although I, I really did start out wanting to write fiction and I wound up writing about science, which I think at this point is way cooler. Uh, so I'm happy that I wound up there. Let's see, I write for Muse Magazine and Science News for Students regularly as a journalist. And I also write a lot of educational books about various science topics, but Strange But True, 10 of the World's Greatest Mysteries Explained is my first trade book. So it's my first book that's really mine that, you know, I saw through from beginning to end, and I'm very excited that it's out in the world. It came out this past October. That's fantastic. Congratulations. I was going to just comment and say that with your, your current book, Strange But True, that you've been able to uh, mesh fiction with science. I have. Yes, sense. yes. That was something I was very excited about with this book is that I did get to tell some little fictional stories uh, or not fictional, depending mm -hmm. on where you stand on these subjects. Um, at the beginning right. of each chapter, I, I really loved being able to, you know, tell some fantastic and magical stories and then go into my my science side of my brain and uh, really talk about what, mm -hmm. what might be going on in these in these stories. Outstanding. So First of all, I really enjoyed the book, and I, it's it's very similar to a project I had been thinking about, and I keep I think this is such a fun idea to do a book called Unsolved Mysteries, but you scratch out the UN, so it's uh -huh. just like, it's, it's just like solved <laughs> mysteries, which is I mean to be fair, that's ninety yeah. percent of what our show is is just uh -huh. kind of explaining mm -hmm. you know what's going on, and of course there's always the mysteries that we don't know the answer to; those are interesting right. too. Right. But, yeah, just looking for possible explanations. But you, but you do a fantastic job of introducing critical thinking approaches to these topics, which makes us wonder what inspired you to tackle this this kind of material. Yeah, well, the critical thinking message really is my ulterior motive here is that I want kids to start, you know, questioning not just these types of mysteries, but everything that they read online, because there's just so much information out there that's being thrown at kids and adults. But kids especially just need, need the tools to be able to separate what's you know, possibly real from what's complete bogus. So I, I really wanted to get kids, you know, with something fun that they're really interested in to start thinking that way so that they could apply it everywhere in their lives. So yeah, that was one ulterior motive <laughs> of this book. Um, but I also, you know, what I, what I really wrote it about or who I wrote it for, I wrote it for me, for me as a, as an eight-year-old to a 10-year-old, because when I was that age, I loved magic. I was a total believer in especially psychic powers. I completely believed that I would be Matilda and be able to move things with my mind. Uh, and there was another road <laughs> doll book that I loved that's less well known called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which is also about a young man who learns how to move things with his mind and see without his eyes. And that one was written more like nonfiction. And I thought it was nonfiction. So I really tried to do this. I tried to do what the character in the book does and stare at a candle flame and unlock my secret powers. And it didn't work, but I was not, you know, dissuaded. <laughs> I kept, I kept my belief strong. And, and I really, at the time also mistrusted science. I felt like it was going to ruin these mysteries. And I didn't like that there were people out there who were trying to tell me that this can't be real. And I, I feel very sad for myself now. And I feel sad for any little kid who feels that way. Cause I now know that that's not what science is doing at all. And I really don't want kids to get that idea about science. I want them to realize that it really makes the world more wonderful and marvelous and deepens the mysteries. It doesn't ruin them at all. Because uh, I mean, I feel like whenever you answer a question with science, there's like five more that come up. And it really, I think, adds wonder to the world. It doesn't take it away. So that's yes. really, that's where the book, that's really the heart of the book to me is, is to share that with kids who might be like me, that they love these mysteries, but are a little, a little wary about what science might be trying to do. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. 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 It can be very difficult to to know, know the difference between nonfiction and yes, fiction. Yes. At that yes. Yes. Exactly. My four-year-old was flicking through the book, and he just had a wonderful time pointing out the spaceships oh, and, yeah. and the uh, the zombies and the haunted houses. But I gather that it's not really aimed at his age group. It's for kids a little bit older. Yeah. Can you tell us what the, the age range is for the book? Uh, I say 10 and up. Um, but really the, the age I had in mind when I was writing it was a freshman in high school. So I really felt like it was more of a YA book, although the way it looks, it looks more middle grade. But um, and and some younger kids have have enjoyed it and uh, read it and loved it. But I, that's who I had in mind. It's pretty high reading level and and some pretty 
creepy stories and difficult concepts in there. Yeah, there are. It, yeah, I really like the content and um, yeah. and the mysteries you chose to mm-hmm. tackle. And my daughter's oh, fourteen. Yeah. Well, I've got two daughters; they're uh-huh. both fourteen. But the uh, <laughs> one of them, uh, my little science girl Sophie, she yeah. she walked by and, and saw me reading this, uh, preparing show notes, and she said. Uh, she wanted to borrow this, but she didn't want to potentially spill something on it if I was going to be using it for the show. And I said, I'll wait till after the show because <laughs> you can't have it now. But uh, <laughs> I think she's very excited about giving it a look. And the yeah. fun thing is one of the topics you tackle in here is uh, the, the Diatlov Pass uh, mystery, yes. yeah. which my wife was so excited about. She's like, have you heard about this mystery? Like just like last week. I was like, uh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Of course I have. I mean, that's what we do. But yeah, it is still a great mystery. And I love how you covered it. This is so fun. Yeah, well, it's funny today. I was at a book signing event today and there was like this eight year old girl who was, you know, came up to me and out of nowhere, she's like, yeah, that Love Pass mystery. She's like, I watched the show on it and here's all the theories and here's what I think. And she knew more about it, I think, than I did. I was like, this is not good. I was like, I'm supposed to be the expert here. It's so, hard. <laughs> but yeah, no, she was uh, she was really up on her Love Pass facts. Well, so so you you. It's interesting, though, but you you just said that you were kind of doing this as a sort of stealth skepticism project. So, I mean, I I think you did a great job. And I I guess what what how would you describe your approach to making critical thinking fun? I think my approach is just to enjoy the mysteries. Like I'm not trying to, to ruin anything. I'm trying to make them fun, but also like make the exploration of them fun as well. Like it's not like you have to you don't have to not believe in it. Science doesn't disbelieve in anything. Like that's one of the points I make is that there, there's always open questions, you know, and the, at the end of the day, science just gives you different possibilities and it can tell you one is way more likely than another, but it can never tell you that aliens didn't build the Sphinx. Like, you know, until we, (laughs) we could always find a flying saucer crash there tomorrow. It's probably never going to happen and extremely unlikely to happen. But the fact is that we can't rule it out. So that's one of the things that I say in there is that, you know, this is not the job of science to believe anything. The whole point is to come up with as many different explanations as possible in the hopes that one of them will turn out to be true. Nice. And so you cover 10 stories in the book. Mm -hmm. How did you you choose which 10 to write about with your, your love of these kinds of stories? There are just so many you could my, write my publisher and I worked together. They had some they really wanted me to include. Like they definitely wanted me to talk about the Bermuda Triangle and Atlantis. And some of those I'm like, well, aren't you know, haven't we been there, done that? But I, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I really pushed for some of the ones like Dyatlov that are less well known. Um, and I just kind of scoured podcasts and like yours and and a lot of other content. You know, I don't know if you know the Mysteries of the Unknown series from back in the 80s, the Time Life series. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. I, I devoured those books as a kid and I went back and got them all out of the library again and <laughs> had great fun rereading them. So that was that helped as well in finding things to talk about. But I also wanted to include some more recent things. So that's why the flight MH370 is in there, because that's a very recent disappearance mm-hmm. that captured a lot of people's mm-hmm. imaginations. So I, I really wanted to cover a lot of different parts of the globe and times in history and hit some of the you know well-known ones as well as some that are a little lesser known. Those had the, those books had those great commercials where like you know three young men walk into the woods one uh-huh. floats in the air what happened next read the book you know <laughs> all their commercials like read the book <laughs> mystic places uh huh it's from Time Life talks about things like the Nazca mines were they runways for alien spaceships and did those aliens interbreed with the ancient Peruvians did they read the book. Read about the medieval warriors who appeared before Stephen Jenkins in 1936. Then he saw him again 38 years later. That true? Read the book. Read about Aleister Crowley and his bride. They spent a honeymoon night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. What happened? Read the book. Read about Cyrus Teeth's belief that people live in the center of the earth. Admiral Byrd looked into it. Know what he found? I know. Read the book. Read Mystic Places. It's yours free for 10 days. So how long did it take for to, to put the book together and to do the research and the, the illustrations? I actually wrote it in one year. So it wasn't – it was pretty wow. fast as far as books go because um, mm-hmm. the opportunity – it was actually the, the publisher asked me if, if I would write for them because they'd read my writing in Muse and, and really liked it. And so we kind of worked together to come Great. up with this concept and 
they they wanted it quickly, so I did it quickly, and it was it was kind of a mad dash, but it was great fun. Um, and I wrote it one chapter because it's ten different stories, so it was really like ten articles, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I wrote them one at a time. So I would, you know, do all the research and write one, and then, you know, I was I was reviewing drafts of the first chapter I'd written when I was still like writing the last one, so it was kind of <laughs> kind of crazy like that. That's always a good way to break it down, though, to just treat them like essays and. Absolutely. So behind behind the scenes kind of question, did did they give you any fact checker help or anything like that? Or do you have to do all the research yourself? I did all the research myself and I did, um, you know, send things through my sources if uh, to, to fact check as well. Um, but, yeah, I did, I did all my own research. Yeah. But I did include detailed source notes. So hopefully, you know, anyone who's curious about where these facts came from can follow through on, you know, on those in the back and see. I, I, yes. I included wherever I could um, the source material because I think that's super important. So, how long have you been doing uh, uh, press on your book now? Uh, since a couple months before it came out, so it came out October first, twenty nineteen. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I don't want to spoil the book, but do you want to talk a little bit about some of the cases you cover? Oh, sure. Yeah, we can we can spoil it. That's all right. <laughs> okay. So it's good yeah. to give some teasers. Yeah. So, which one do you want to talk about? I was just going to say, uh, Catherine was talking about how she's uh, traveled, tried to travel the, the globe as much as possible. And one of the stories that I was particularly interested about was the Monte Cristo homestead, because that's uh, in Australia. And it's it's in a, a little town called Junee, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's about five hours inland from, from Sydney. Um, but it, it's reputed to be Australia's most haunted house. Uh, so if you could tell us a little bit about that and, and how you treat that in the book. Yeah, well, first I can tell you why I picked that haunted house. Um, I, I was looking, as I said, I wanted things from around the globe, so I didn't want to pick a haunted house in the U.S. Um, Europe would have been okay, but I really wanted to do the Forbidden City in China, which is supposed to be haunted. But I ran into a problem when I found out that the ghosts there are supposed to be the ghosts of 100 murdered concubines. So I decided that would be a little difficult of a subject for 10-year-olds. For eight-year-olds. Yeah. So I, I had to move on. Uh, and so when I was look, looking for another haunted place to cover, I did come across this mansion in Australia. And I thought, well, Australia, that's not in the book yet. So let's go there. Um, and I I did speak with um, Lawrence Ryan, who grew up in the house. So that was really fun. I think there are lots of different stories there. And I think uh, doesn't Lawrence's wife think that she's a, re- a reincarnated uh, a woman they're, of someone who lived there. They're actually not married anymore. Um, he was married to someone oh. who who had you know some medium thing going on. But Plains. yeah, when I spoke with him, he said they're sure. not married anymore. Um, he is still okay. leading ghost tours there though. But yeah, so the house was originally built by the wealthy Crawley family. So so this guy, um, what's his name? Christopher William Crawley. He made a ton of money because he got some foreknowledge about a railway that was going to run through this land. So he bought the land and built a hotel, you know, and just made a ton of money off of people all of a sudden wanting to buy up this land in this that town that now had a railway going through it. That's like a, that's like a Western plot, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, so he, he had 10 kids and, you know, tennis courts and this beautiful mansion and, you know, servants and all this stuff. Um, and a lot of tragic things supposedly happened. Now my, I was not really able to corroborate most of this history. It all comes from Lawrence Ryan and like their family tales. I did find, you know, a couple death records of some of the people. So, I mean, all this stuff I'm going to say, who knows if it's actually true or not. It's, it's, Sure. <laughs> it's the mythology around the house. So as the story goes, they had um, so they had these ten kids, and one of the deaths he told me about was that the tenth child was dropped down the staircase by her nanny at the age of eighteen mm-hmm. months old and died. And there are claims that the nanny dropped her on purpose because the nannies were poorly treated. Another death was another another young maid who may have been pregnant at the time was pushed off of a balcony or committed suicide. Um, Another one was there was a uh, a young boy, a stable boy, who was badly burned um, when his mattress was either caught on fire or set on fire, depending who you ask. It sounds uh, like the, <laughs> the ghastly crumb tinies from uh, – Right. Like, yes. So then he died. Seven, yeah. Right. yeah, and he died of his burns. Um, so most of these are maids and servants and things that are dying, but the one daughter did die as well. Um, and the Crawley parents also both passed away in the house. Um, William Crawley died when a boil on his neck got infected, and then his wife lived alone in the house for a long time, and then she passed away also in the house and apparently was like, like just never left the property. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all sorts of creepy things that supposedly happened there. And um, 
some people believe that that type of thing makes a house more likely to be haunted. And uh, yeah. it certainly makes you feel more creeped out when you're there. I think I've heard different versions uh, of, of all of those stories. So with the the, the uh, pregnant woman, I've heard that uh, in some cases that she committed suicide and then in other other versions that she was murdered. And uh, yeah, I think one of the main reasons for all the stories behind the house and the fact that it's it's so well known is that it's old by Australian standards. Uh, it's yeah. a 19th century house and uh, a lot of houses don't have that kind of a history. So I think that that in itself lends itself to yeah, being attached sure. to stories of ghosts and legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Lawrence Ryan told me his family moved in before he was born. His parents bought it. Um, his his sisters, I think three of his sisters were there when they first moved in. And it had no running water, no electricity, no running water. It had really fallen into ruin um, over the decades since the last, you know, the Crawleys died. But he said there were a number of stories from when he was growing up that made them feel like the original residents were still living there. So the first one he told me about was that his parents were going to get building supplies very soon after he bought the house. And they came back and saw light streaming from all the windows. And they thought that squatters had returned because there used to be squatters in the house. But then when they went up to the house, there was no one there and the lights just just, had just turned off completely Mm -hmm. and there was no electricity. So that's creepy. Creepy. Yes. And then there were other stories like a picture that his dad hung and then it fell and then it hung and he hung it again and it fell again. And finally, when they moved it to the other wall, it stayed. Um, he, they said they would hear footsteps on the balcony where the maid either committed suicide or was pushed. Um, he told me about a night when he was, uh, he doesn't remember this, but he was very young and he was sleeping and his parents sent his sister to check on him. And she saw an old man sitting at the end of his bed and ran to yell, tell her parents. And when they came back, no one was there. Um, so he told me he, he always <laughs> felt like someone was watching him in that room. And then when he got to be a teenager and finally heard the story for the first time, he moved out of the main house into like some back house because he just didn't want to be there anymore. Wow. So, yeah. So he definitely believes that there's something in that house. Um, and, you know, that's that's certainly, you know, when you've grown up with those type of experiences, I can see where that comes from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a beautiful house. Uh, and it's it's I think you can actually stay there on the premises. Yes. And, yep. But I know they, they run ghost mm-hmm. tours. They do. Yeah. So it's certainly worth visiting. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I would I have not seen it, unfortunately, but I would love to. You, you mentioned before the. I have heard people call skeptics fun ruiners. Right. And I think it's like, well, that's just what people said to you. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think what I've grown to do is over time, uh, I've learned that I enjoy investigating the mystery. Uh, even if it doesn't have an answer, I enjoy taking, you know, as much scientific approach as I can or historical mm-hmm. approach as I can. And it kind of doesn't matter if there's not an answer. I love it when there is, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I, I think yeah. we've learned, also learned that people experience strange things. And it's yeah. like lots of reasons mm-hmm. behind that. And you've got them scattered all through your book, which right. is great. Well, yeah, we love the folklore. Yeah, and one of the main things that I took away from this book, especially when I talked to people who were believers, is that even if ghosts aren't real, they're very real to the people who experience them. That like it's very possible ah. for people to see ghosts or see sea monsters or see aliens or, or feel them or hear them or whatever. That doesn't mean they're real, but it is extremely real to the people who have that experience. And that is something that we have to take into account as skeptics, that they they are experiencing these things. And that's how, how cool the brain is, that it does that. It, yeah. <laughs> when, when it's working properly, it can, it can still – lead to lots of things like faulty memory is, mm-hmm. is actually just memory. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It's how it's supposed to yeah. work. Yeah. It's and not, then, uh, yeah. like, like I, I'm going through some, my, some of my family's having some mental, mental health uh, issues yeah. now, yeah. which is unfortunate, but mm-hmm. I'm torn because like, I, like part of me is like, Oh, this is terrible. That this relative is going through this. But on the other hand, it's also fascinating. I mean, yeah. it really is, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still sad, but I'm also, paying a lot of attention to what I'm seeing, experiencing with this person mm-hmm. and what they're compared to what they see. So yeah, it's really yeah. fascinating. Monster Talk. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles Select one and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. 
I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My Audible recommendation this week is They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. This is a foundational text of UFO lore and introduces the reader to the kind of fandom and amateur academic work of ufology, as well as to the mystery and lore around agencies and mysterious figures who try to suppress UFO news, at least according to Barker. This story will give you a creepy introduction to the world of the men in black before those characters spin off to their own series, or at least become a standard part of UFO lore. Barker himself is a strange and enigmatic figure whose work is shaped by his whimsical prankster nature, his awareness that much of the stuff he writes about he didn't believe or couldn't believe, but yet his finances depended upon selling it, and by the secrets about his life that society was not ready to embrace. If you're interested in UFOs, you owe it to yourself to read They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, and the Audible Edition is a great way to consume it. With Audible, I was able to listen while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster talk. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Oh, and it's amazing how a lot of things that people can experience with mental health issues uh, can be misconstrued as being paranormal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Spiritual, all, you know, supernatural. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, 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 well, I don't want to, that's a dark, dark path to go down, but <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. So instead, we'll let's talk about zombies. Now I, let me commend you because mm -hmm. so many books on my shelves go the path of the, we're talking about the Haitian style voodoo zombie and they go down the path of going as far as saying, okay, Wade Davis investigated. It turns out that chemical products can cause zombieism, but you went further and also read the, the subsequent literature and admit that like, you know, critical uh, response to Davis's book is, well, actually what was tested didn't really match that. Like there's not enough of right. the toxins. So right. I love the fact that you took it to the next thing and went on to examine how these stories came about. But what I'm curious about, by yeah. the way, so let me just say, I love the chapter. Mm -hmm. You used the term zombie versus zombie. I, and I'm just, tell me more about that. How did you come up with that? Well, I came <laughs> up with that from, um, yeah, Elizabeth McAllister of Wesleyan University. So she was the, the, um, the academic who I interviewed for this chapter. Um, and she's actually the one who collected that zombie bottle that that's in the illustration. And that's a real, that's a real zombie bottle. She collected that in Haiti and it's one that, you know, uh, 
a boko are made um, that to contain a soul of a deceased person. So that's pretty cool. That's the real thing there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she uses the term zombie with an N and, and the reason she does it and the reason I did it is to differentiate it from zombie with M-B-I-E because it's come to mean such a very different thing in our culture than it means in the Haitian culture. So I really wanted to make it very clear that it's not the same thing, that the zombie with an mm-hmm. N is, you know, this is, is, is a slave. It's an enslaved person who's been brought back from the dead without their will um, and trapped and they're not a danger to anyone. They're just kind of you know, a, a sad case of, of someone who is trapped. Um, whereas the zombie with an M and a B and I, I, E is this like monster that eats brains. So <laughs> in movies, right. <laughs> yeah. so that's kind of, you know, that's what it's become in our culture. And it's just such a different thing that I felt like it needed a different word when I talked about the, sure. the historical zombie. Yeah. That's, I, it reminded me a little bit, the, um, I think the, the writer, Robert E. Howard, uh, he created a term called Zvimbis, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But but yeah, the same idea. Just getting – you absolutely remove yourself from the uh, yeah. zombie flesh-eating sort right. of Romero-style thing. It's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Although it's funny that we – like the word that is the origin of – like the, the, the original zombie is the Haitian zombie. Yes. And, and I think Romero called his guys ghouls. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and mm-hmm. yet, uh, the Romero zombie is like clearly won the meme war, right? <laughs> like there's, there's no question that most people, for some reason, right, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, well, I, I think it's because they're, they're, they're more of an existential threat. The idea that it could be sort of viral or something. I'm not sure, but, and there's lots more movies sure. about, yeah. uh, the sort of supernatural, uh, versus, uh, yeah. Haitian voodoo zombie, the, uh, uh, viral or however you want to approach it. Anyway, I, I just found it very interesting. Great yeah. chapter too. I really like that. My favorite fact I learned about zombies was um, that the way to free a zombie is to feed it salt. Yes. You so, could have, yeah. That's yeah. the, uh, you learned, they cover that in uh cold, check the night stalker. One of my favorite TV shows. Yeah. yeah so there's a, they did a great episode of that about zombies. I really like that one. Um, you never know when that fact will come in handy. You don't, you know, but you stuff that baby full of salt, sew its mouth shut, you'll be good to go. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess alternatively, find the bokor and have them yes unsick right. their dog, basically. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Catherine, you've included some really great skeptical investigator to- tools in the book as well, uh, like uh, Occam's razor and uh, perception problems and hoaxes and statistics. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you included those in the book and, and what ones you decided to include and, and how your publisher treated that as well? Well, actually, my introduction is is super important to this book because as we were getting into it, you know, my editor kept pushing the, you know, drama of the stories and I was getting worried that I was going to, you know, trick kids, that I was going to um, get them to believe something that is, isn't true just because I'm making this all dramatic mm-hmm. and exciting, which is the opposite of what I wanted to do. So. I came up with this idea, and my critique group actually helped with this as well, to add this introduction that kind of sets out what this book is going to do and that, you know, you may be fooled by some of these stories, and that's okay, but I'm going to give you some tools on how to prevent that from happening now and in the future, you know, anything Mm -hmm. else you read. Um, So that's kind of in in the introduction. I lay out, you know, here's some examples of things that might be tempting, and here's why Mm -hmm. you don't want to think that way, and here's a way you can think about it. You know, I, I introduce Occam's Razor in there. I introduce the idea of looking into different sources. Um, I introduce the idea of things that could be seem related but aren't. Um, mm-hmm. So really, a lot there's a lot of stuff packed in there that that I'm trying to get get kids kids thinking along the right lines to to be able to be skeptical as they read the exciting stories. Which is really great to reach kids at that age because I, I think I wasn't understanding a lot of these concepts. I think I had a natural inbuilt skepticism, uh-huh. but I certainly didn't know what these concepts were and didn't know what these terms were right. uh, until I was really in my late teens or 20s. Right. Uh, so it, it's great to introduce kids to these concepts early. Yeah. So did you ever consider like inserting like a skeptic checklist or anything like that to sort of uh, make it more uh, procedural or did you always want to include it as part of the narrative? Um, yeah, this was always a kind of a narrative book. I never really thought about, we never had any sort of, um, you know, anything like that where it would be kind of an activity based thing. Um, although when I do events around the book, I do have kids think of a mystery that they've encountered either someone in their family has told them or, you know, one they've 
seen on the internet or whatever and have them come up with a plan to investigate it. So I do have, I do have them kind of set up a couple different theories and then go through, you know, what questions could you ask if you were there and what things could you do to test it? So I do have them kind of put these um, ideas into practice about a mystery that they know about. Um, Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun. Catherine, what's the the reaction been to the book? Because you're talking about uh, going to what schools and libraries and uh, doing book signings, how people receive the book. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback and from adults as well. I mean, I think every event I've done, there's been one middle-aged man or woman who's, you know, just super into these kind of mysteries and, and, mostly a believer who just really wants to talk to me. So <laughs> thankfully they haven't been too creepy, but they've been there. So I've, <laughs> I've got, you know, the kids reading it, but also adults, which is really fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm reaching a, you know, a wide audience with it. I haven't had a lot of direct feedback. I haven't got any like letters from readers or anything yet, but I've had a, you know, I got a picture on Twitter. That will yes, happen. I hope so. Of a dad, you know, showing his son, you know, he's like, he hasn't put left the book, you know, for three hours, he's, he's had his nose in it. So it's been cute. You know, I love seeing things like that. Well, you, you, you were wise in my opinion that you, you sort of, you touch on Bigfoot without doing a Bigfoot chapter Yeah. and, and you touch on ghosts without like taking on ghosts as a whole. And, and, um, in general, you've sort of, you didn't do an Amelia Earhart chapter, right? I mean, so, you, so in that sense, you've avoided a lot of the, um, uh, the sort of subcultures around particular mysteries, um, and I think maybe that will keep you from some of the hate mail mm-hmm. now, but, but not every mystery <laughs> in the book is solved, which I also like. So like yeah. your, the, the, the past chapter, um, do you want to talk about that case a little bit? Sure. I mean, I know we've never actually yeah. covered it on the show. Oh, okay. We haven't. Yeah. yeah. So the Dyatlov Pass mystery is is a very sad case of nine young hikers um, from the Soviet Union who uh, they were very experienced, very you know accomplished outdoorsmen and women, and they went on this hike into the you know desolate mountains of Siberia, and never came back. And people searched for them and found their bodies, and they were in you know had various unusual injuries. They were in various states of undress. Uh, some of them were burned. You know, they were in all different places. They had clearly left their tent. It was slashed from the inside. So they had like slashed their way out of their tent and walked off into the snow and no one knows why. So that's, so <laughs> that's strange. the mystery. It's absolutely bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you did a great job. What are some of the theories for? for yeah. I mean, there's every theory you can think of. I actually, this was originally my first chapter. Cause I was like, well, this covers every paranormal thing ever imagined. Like some people think it was alien. Some people think <laughs> it was Yeti. Some people think it was, you know, a government conspiracy like it's really anything anything that anyone's ever imagined it's it's there's a theory about it with this case <laughs> i think it was it was amelia Earhart who's now become a time yeah. traveling assassin you, you honestly could that does <laughs> oh, that, that out of place with all the theories i've read about this <laughs> yeah um and part of the reason it's so mysterious i think is because you know this happened during the soviet union and the government kind of you know made the investigators kind of wrap up early. So people that like added some mis- intrigue to it, um, and, you know, just it being so distant and remote. And let's see. So, so some of the theories, um, some of the more reasonable ones are that there was some sort of avalanche that they were fleeing from, uh, although the tent wasn't buried. Okay. So if there was an avalanche, it didn't actually hit the tent, uh, but they may have thought mm-hmm. there was one coming. Um, there've been theories about a fire, although they never actually assembled their stove in the tent and, um, the burns happened because there were some people who tried to build a fire most likely when they couldn't find their way back to the tent and they just might've fallen okay. on the fire when they succumbed to hypothermia. Um, so it probably wasn't a fire that made them leave the tent. Uh, it could have been, um, some sort of animal. So that's where the Yeti and Bigfoot ideas come in. Um, is that some sort of animal scared them out of their tent, but they found okay. footprints from the hikers and did not find any footprints from an animal. So that's not very likely to be true. There were glowing orbs sighted in the sky around the time they were on the mountain, although from my research, it seems that it was not the same night. Uh, There were were missile tests. The Soviet Union was developing new weapons technology. So that is another interesting theory is that some sort of weapon struck and either scared them out of the tent or caused some of their injuries because like some of the injuries were, you know, blunt force trauma that could have been caused by some sort of explosion. So that's another interesting possibility, and that leads some people to believe aliens were involved too because of the glowing lights. And then the one that um, that I deal with towards the end is uh, the one that's in the book. So the book is Dead Mountain by Donnie Icar, 
Yeah. yeah. So he, um, his theory that he comes to, which I thought he did a great job with the book, is that it was infrasounds. So there were these mountains mm. near where they died that had a unique shape, and and he really, you know, did his research to figure out that it certainly was possible that the shape of these mountains and wind flowing through them could have made infrasounds, which are sounds that are too low for people to hear. Now the part where this falls apart for me is that I just couldn't find any convincing research that infrasounds actually drive people crazy. Yeah, that's, his theory, yeah. <laughs> it's the same problem with Persinger's uh, God Helmet stuff. Yeah, exactly. Theory, it's yeah. a great, fun idea, but I, I just don't think it really holds up under testing. You know, right, right. Mm-hmm. It's just that, yeah, I just couldn't find convincing research that. I mean, it, it, it did convince me that these sounds could have been there, but I just didn't see the connection that these sounds could have actually made these people so afraid that they would leave their tent. I, th- I find it fascinating, but I also it's the whole thing about. People don't understand what happens when we die. Yeah. There's, there's this whole field of uh, studying de- decomposition and uh, life forms uh, de- called taphonomy. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it ties into like chupacabra research and lots of other things. I've been doing some of my own experiments on that as well. Just I'd like to get some of this on film. But the um, when, when, you know the soft body parts will go missing. Like the tongue is missing, the lips are missing, mm-hmm. the eyes are missing, the rectum has been cored out, or whatever. And it, and yeah. it sounds very mysterious and weird. Yeah. Uh, you know. And then mm-hmm. things about how well there was no blood. Well, yeah, the, because the blood congeals, it goes to the lowest part of the body, and lots of other things happen. And and because of that ignorance, things that are actually quite mundane can seem horrifically mysterious. And yeah. I, I feel I feel like a mm-hmm. lot of what was going on there. Uh, at least with the condition of the bodies, yes, seems like it was probably not so mysterious, right? And what you're referring, yeah, people yeah. just not familiar with that. Yeah, and what you're referring to is that some one of the hikers was found without her tongue. There were others who were, you know, missing some soft parts of their bodies, and and from my understanding, that could have been animals feeding on them as well. Yeah, so it could be some sure. decomposition or animals feed because I don't know if they were out there long enough to decompose that much because they weren't. They did find them within a couple weeks. Right. Um, I, when I said decompose, yeah. I just mean yeah. the, the disposition would be probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. But um. But, yeah. Yeah. That to yeah. me seemed pretty well explained by just animals preying on them. And, I, and honestly, what I came to as the most likely explanation is just that some sort of human error happened. That they either had some sort of argument, or made a mistake about something that like they thought an avalanche was coming and it wasn't, or yeah. they had a fight, or someone you know, just someone maybe went outside and just didn't come back and the rest went to look for that person. And then the others went to look for them. You know, Mm -hmm. you never know. Like, I think it was some sort of human mistake because one tiny mistake could compound greatly when you're in this kind of situation. Um, it it was a very windy night. Um, and they're in, you know, on this slope in this very forbidding landscape, uh, they would have been, you know, within minutes of being outside that tent, just completely hypothermic and making horrible decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. call it Dyatlov Pass. They named it after one of the victims, yes, right? Did, yeah, and, yeah. Um, the leader of the the leader of the group was Dyatlov. Yeah. I never looked to see what the weather was like that night and what the lunar cycle was like. But one time, I went to the Appalachian. Well, I like to say Appalachian, but some people say Appalachian. But anyway, I went to the mountains in Tennessee with some friends, and we made the mistake of miscalculating how long it would be before sunset. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, we found ourselves about two miles away from our vehicle. And the sun went down, and it was a moonless night. I yeah. don't know that I've ever <laughs> seen darkness to that level outside before. Yeah. I mean, you could you could see the stars, but you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. Like it was amazing. Oh yeah. And, and one, I mean, yeah. Only one of us had a, a like a tiny little pathetic flashlight. So you had like eight people with their hands on the shoulder in front of the person in front of them walking out through the woods, mm-hmm. relying on like this little double A pathetic flashlight trying to get back to our car. I was like, I've never traveled without a better flashlight since. Like, mm-hmm. so that happened 30 years <laughs> ago awesome. and I always have a flashlight. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's intense. Like how quickly uh, experience outside can go from completely under control to not under control at all. I mean, just a small, you know, mm-hmm. on, uh, people die every year on just on, on Mount Washington in New Hampshire, just cause they don't know. Yes. Cause, cause the weather changes so mm-hmm. suddenly and you know, they, yep. they head out with the wrong clothing or they just, you know, are mm-hmm. too confident, even if they're very experienced, it just happens all the time. Yep. I have a friend yeah. who lives mm-hmm. very near there and goes up there a lot and talks about how you can be dead in yeah. no time if you're not careful because oh, yeah. it, you just don't realize it seems fine. It's a sunny day yep. and suddenly the temperature drops 40 degrees and you're wearing shorts like a dummy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yes. And then you lose your tongue. Yes. Yeah. And, then you lose your, and, then, and, then, and then an animal eats your tongue. Yes. That's how it happens. That's science. 
You treat so many great stories in this book, and uh, as Blake was saying, you kind of touch upon ghosts and Bigfoot, but you do leave a lot of room for other stories that, that you haven't gone into great detail with. Does this mean that there'll be another volume of the book? Well, I am working on a sequel right now, but it's not going to be more paranormal stories. It's actually um, – the connection is that it's also explaining things that are kind of mysterious, but the stories are all science fiction, so I talk about the future. So it's about Ooh. the future of technology. Okay. Uh so there's stories like, well, you know, about people controlling things with their minds. Then I go into, you know, will this ever be possible and how could it be possible? And what are researchers doing right now that might get us closer to that future? And do we even want this future? That's kind of the key idea of the next book is, you know, what do we actually want our future to be like? This technology <laughs> book is actually much more in my comfort zone than the paranormal book was because I've been writing about robots oh. and, and uh, that kind of thing for far longer than this. <laughs> oh, yeah, really? yeah. <laughs> Well, so uh, are you going to be covering like uh, the robot apocalypse, that kind of stuff? And uh... No, actually, my, I, I did want to write a book and I probably still will about like doomsday scenarios. But my publisher wanted to go a little more, uh, a little less scary, I guess, which I kids love scary. I don't know why they didn't want it to be that. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, my yeah. God. I, I'm still going to write that book, I promise. But yeah. um, I went more in the direction of, of positive futures that we could have. And then. Ah, OK. OK. But I did, okay. I did address, you know, drawbacks. Like I, I talk about robot servants and then, you know, will they take all our jobs? And I talk about, you know, mind control technology. But, you know, will the government control our minds? So I, I do bring up some of the drawbacks of these things, even though they sound pretty cool when you first think about them. I love all these. Yeah. This sounds Great. Yeah. yeah, this is all, this is mm-hmm. all right up our alley and our listeners' alley. It's a, it's a big wide alley, with lots of room. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, okay, so obviously yeah. we'll link out to your book. Is there anything else you want us to uh, share in the show notes? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at khulik. Uh, I'm also on Instagram Catherine underscore hulick, uh, and uh, my website's katherinehulick.com. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Crazy. And um, this, just so you'll know, just uh, uh, just bookkeeping. Can you send us a um, an image you'd like for like a headshot yep. or anything? Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise, we we can also put the book in there. Whatever you want. Yeah, yeah uh, I have some headshots. And any links? Yeah. Okay. So uh, Karen warned you up a- ahead of time mm-hmm. that that we have a standard <laughs> closing question. Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. So here we go. <laughs> Catherine, you want me to do it? <laughs> well, no, you, you, if you want to, that's fine. After that big pause, I thought you wanted me to do it. I'll leave it for you. Okay, Catherine Hulick, what is your favorite monster? A dragon. Oh, it's not okay. in my book. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of dragons do you like? Um, oh, any kind of dragon. Um, and unicorns too, but I don't really consider them monsters. But I, I just like you know the traditional fantasy was be. my first love. Oh yeah, and that's just what I got to go back to. And I, and I, I had pet lizards as a kid. I had two iguanas. Oh. Um, that's the closest I could get to a dragon. <laughs> yeah, they, they are, they are amazing. We, we yeah. still, we owe our listeners another episode. We, we covered <laughs> uh, the, the Asian dragons. Oh yeah. And, and we talked about mm-hmm. the origin of why the dragon is like one of people see dragons all over the world and it has a lot of cultural reasons, but we haven't actually mm-hmm. just gone back and done a straight up, uh, European dragons and worms. Uh, yeah. that's, that's W Y R M S in case mm-hmm. my listeners didn't hear it, but we're, <laughs> we're, yeah. <laughs> but I was a big, I was a big fan of Anne McCaffrey as a kid. So her dragons oh, yeah. were probably the ones that I go back to as you know, what I, what I think of when I think of a dragon. Isn't that cool? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I got my daughter to read those. Uh, yeah. Least, one and the whole idea of the thread fall and, and oh, yeah so i just cool. it is it's like a genetically engineering dragon yeah. space problems this is right. really fun it's really uh-huh. fun so i know I, there's a lot more of those than i've read though but uh-huh. <laughs> my son's uh, favorite toy at the moment is a, a dragon mm. and uh, i just asked him what's its name and he said dave so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> where that came from but dave the dragon That's funny pretty cool <laughs> well Catherine, thank you so much for spending an hour with Monster Talk or, or thereabouts. Thank you. Yes, thank you. The, the book is beautiful. And uh, did you – who did the illustrations? Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Gordy Wright is the illustrator, and he did a marvelous job. I just was blown away by every picture. Like, every time I saw a new art, a new page with art, I just – it's it's. Fantastic. Oh, they're great. Yeah. They, yeah. They, it's cool because even the ones where they're, they're referencing a photo, like uh, – you're doing Mumler's photos, for example. Mm-hmm. His illustrations, without having the actual photo, clearly you're showing the actual photo. Well yeah. done. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, just just fantastic stuff. Oh, now it'd be fun. I've got a lot of friends who are uh, 
archaeologist, so it'll yeah. be neat, neat to see what they think about some of his his work copying these things. But they're so good. They yeah. are so good. Um, he did a great job. Yeah. Beautiful and colorful yeah. and great for kids and, and adults. I mean, just and it's fun, but like the, the brain scans and uh, – Oh, yeah, my son thought those were avocados. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just let him believe that at this point. <laughs> this is great. It's great. Thank you so much. Good night, guys. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with author Catherine Hewlett about her latest book, Strange But True. A link to the book will be in the show notes. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for making time for our show and your busy, busy lives. Monster House presentation. Ever experienced deja vu? Sort of. Ever experienced deja vu? Sort of. Ever experienced deja vu? Read the book. Sort of. Ever experienced Read the book. Deja vu? Read the book. Read the book. Sort of. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.